Good morning, everyone. Before uh, we jump into our topic for this morning or into the text, uh, I just wanted to update on you on one thing. You'll hear more about it when all 20 of you come to the business meeting. Uh, the more the merrier. Actually, we'd love for you to be there. But uh, we'll talk more about vision and values and uh, kind of where the church is at financially and all of that fun business-related stuff. But one of the things that we wanted to make sure that we updated you a little bit on, some of you have been tracking with this for a while, but we uh, have in the past planted churches, and the goal is to continue to plant churches. And again, I'll talk more on this in the next couple of weeks. But uh, we have been, uh, over the last several months, really tracking with some stuff over in Coeur d'Alene. You, many of you know that Jeff and Christy and his family came on staff for the sole purpose of being equipped and prepared to be sent by this community to Coeur d'Alene to plant a church. And I uh, just had the opportunity over this last week to spend a full day with Jeff and Christy and their leadership team over there and just had a dynamic time. I mean, it was uh, spectacular the way that God is moving and uh, the things that are already coming together. And uh, we're eager to see how he continues to move. But uh, just recently, Jeff had the opportunity to go um, back to where he originally, originally came from. And uh, he, I just wanted to ask him to come up and just share a, a quick testimony of some things that God's been doing. So, Jeff? Thanks, Russ. Um, yeah, God is so good. Uh, a couple of months ago, um, I asked Russ and Rob, I said, you know, I'm really starting to like it here a lot. And what if I don't want to be sent? And Rob said, well, then we'll just fire you. Um, to which I said, okay, God, you've got to have to provide for this. Um, so this last weekend, Christy and I had the pleasure of reconnecting with some great friends of ours down in the Bay Area, some we hadn't seen in 10 years since we moved from there up here 10 years ago. Um, but all the folks we met with, um, we had been in ministry with or we had been in small group with, some of them we had planted a church with, uh, and they've all been through interesting seasons in their lives as well. But uh, we decided to go down and tell them about what we were up to and the vision we had for a missional community of faith in North Idaho. And as I was flying down the last Friday, I'm thinking to myself, why in the world would anybody in the San Francisco Bay Area want to support a, a small group of people in North Idaho? You know, God, I, I don't, I'm almost even embarrassed to ask. Um, but we had some lofty goals for how we'd be supported, and we went and we presented to our friends, and they prayed for us, and they loved on us, and... Um, just a couple of days ago, I got word back that a number of them have committed to support us financially, which is so cool. Um, it's just a great example of people embracing kingdom over empire, and uh, they're on board with us. And then just um, Thursday, I got word, Friday, I got word um, from one of my friends that they are in to support us for $30,000. Isn't that awesome? $10,000 a year for the next three years. Um, so I only give you that amount because I'm looking for someone to match it. So any of you <laughs> who want to match that, that would be awesome. Um, but God is good, and we are humbled, and we're so thankful for this place that's equipping us yeah. to send us. So thanks. One of the reasons that I <clears throat> wanted Jeff to share that is, one, just so that we could praise God. I mean, it's amazing how he provides. But the, the other reason is this. When, when we actually hired them, we did it with a big step of faith. We knew that um, bringing them on would be something that we can't necessarily afford really well, honestly. Um, but there was this belief that when God moves you to something and he tells you to do it, 
that you're supposed to follow in obedience. And as you do, that he always, always shows up. And uh, I'm convinced of that. I want to live my life with that principle that if he's called me to something or called you to something, that we're to, to follow and he will take care of the rest. And so it was just confirming to me again on hearing that report that, man, God, you are in this. You are moving. And uh, we're really excited about what he's been doing and what God will continue to do in Coeur d'Alene. We'll give you more details. Jeff will share a little bit at the business meeting. So that's kind of come. Okay. <clears throat> If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're actually going to teach out of the exact same passage we did last week, but uh, look at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, As Kevin already mentioned, our topic for this morning is the subject of divorce. Now, divorce is uh, is an interesting topic to begin to to tackle, and uh, this last week, I had a fun conversation with one of my friends in South Carolina. He and I get on the phone or we Skype once a month uh, for about an hour. And uh, he is a pastor church planner down in South Carolina. We interact about life. We pray for one another, talk about what's going on. And uh, during it, it came up that I was going to be speaking on this subject of divorce this week. And uh, so he asked me a question kind of along the lines of of this Are you in any way nervous about speaking on a divorce? Uh, do you have any concerns, with, maybe with how it will be received or what you're going to communicate? And I just looked at him through the screen and said, oh, absolutely not. I'm convinced that within 30 minutes I will be able to solve the debate that has raged for over 3,000 years, and it will clear everything up. And uh, so th- that's not true, certainly. Uh, we know that divorce is not simple, right? Divorce is always a topic of debate. Whenever people talk about divorce, and there are so many complexities, so many issues, uh, there's heartache that's all wrapped up in this particular subject, and it's never, never simple. In fact, there has never been a simple marriage that ended in a simple divorce, just doesn't work that way. In fact, uh, <clears throat> I would say that within the church, we probably do a disservice to people when we try to wrap it up all nice, neat, and tidy and uh, declare that it's simple and easy and uh, here's the final and definitive word on it. So you can rest assured that this morning uh, will be just this tension filled, I'm sure. Uh, it will not probably answer all Uh, of the questions that are burning, nor will it necessarily answer all the questions that may even arise as we walk through this particular passage this morning. But my goal is this. Uh, I hope to address three things this morning. I want to talk about questions, answers, and then a community response. Questions, answers, and a community response. Here's what I mean. Uh, Questions. Jesus in Matthew 19 was asked particular questions, two of them to be exact. We're going to look at what questions were asked. We're going to look at the specific answers that Jesus gave concerning those questions. And then I want to spend the last little while talking a bit about a community response. Meaning, how do we, understanding the teachings of Jesus, how do we begin to live this out as a community? What are some practical applications or steps that we might need to take in light of what Jesus is teaching? All right? So that's my goal this morning, and uh, let's jump in. Matthew 19, if you have your Bible, you can look. 
Uh, give you a little context, Jesus has just traveled to this area and uh, he's been uh, healing and teaching. And it comes to verse 3 in chapter 19. And it says this, that the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's the first question that Jesus is asked. Now, what's interesting when you read this particular passage and you read the question, it is very clear that there are ulterior motives to the question. There's hidden agendas behind what's being asked. And so they're even, as it says, trying to test Jesus. So in order to understand the question, why it's asked, and in order to understand the context, we're going to jump back into history a little bit and take a little history lesson. So for those of you that like history, um, this would be great. For those of you that don't like history, this would be great. You need to, to focus on it because this was a really debated, debated topic in Jesus' time. This is something that uh, was, people were wrestling with. And they were wrestling with it because they were the, kind of at the question at the center of the debate was this. Is it lawful or is it biblical to send away your wife for any reason? The literal translation would be something along the lines of to loose, send away, or cast aside is kind of the idea. So is it biblical, Jesus, to cast aside your wife for any particular reason? Now to understand Jesus' response, we have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. You don't have to turn there, we'll just put it on the screen. It says this, just verse 1, that's the main part I'm going to focus on this morning. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of force, then it goes on to explain some of the ramifications of that. So let me explain it this way. Prior to this statement being made, prior to the book of Deuteronomy showing up on the scene and Moses communicating certain things, life for a woman in the ancient Near East was not really great. Okay? It was not a good time to live if you were a woman. You were treated without uh, rights, without privileges. In fact, uh, the way it worked is if you were married, you were the property of your husband. And you hate to say it that way, but just as property for land or for animals or for wives were treated as property. And what would often happen then is that husbands, knowing that the wife is just a piece of property, could, at whenever they wanted, for whatever reason, dismiss their wife. They could make, wake up one morning, say, I've actually I've had enough, I'm tired of being married to you, and uh, you're on your way. And divorce, at that time, it was happening quite regularly that men would just decide, I, I'm actually I'm done with you. I don't want you around anymore. So there's no honor and respect, there's no dignity or rights for women And so what's interesting for women at the time is that when men would toss them aside, most of the time they would enter into this barbaric world, really, as a a single woman. Sometimes she would be tossed aside with her kids, depending on whether or not the, the husband or the man decided if he wanted to keep them or not. So she would either be thrown out single or thrown out with her kids, and really... She had no dignity. She wasn't respected in the community. She had no protection 
She had no means of provision. And most often she would find herself in one of two states. She would either beg an extended family member for them to take her in as a servant, therefore allowing her to you know, kind of provide a little bit or to take care of the property or the house or whatever they needed and then they would uh, maintain or take care of her, allow her to eat. Or, which was most often the case, they would end up in prostitution where they're trying to kind of make their way through life and provide for themselves and for their children. And so life for a woman in the ancient Near East society was, uh, was horrific. Now, Deuteronomy comes along, Moses comes along, and into that context, he writes this statement. And he says, he declares in the text, that you as husbands must write to your wives a certificate of divorce. Now, a certificate of divorce, he's, he's basically, in saying that, he's saying, I am acknowledging the reality of divorce. Divorce is happening all across this land. It's happening again and again in our society. I see that it's happening, and I am going to say, through God's inspired word, that you must offer a certificate of divorce, or you must go through the process of a legal divorce. Now, to understand the context, you would have to realize that what what Moses states in Deuteronomy 24 would be a major leap forward for women, societally. I mean, this would have been a profound, freeing, um, radical kind of acknowledgement, a a pro-woman declaration that from this point forward, women could not be haphazardly tossed aside, but rather men would have to go through the process of a legal separation or a legal divorce in which women would retain their rights. They could no longer just be cast out. They would not be humiliated in society, but that they would be able to move forward with dignity. Now, fast forward to Jesus' time, first century. We're in Jesus' day, and the debate is still centering on Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, particularly verse 1. And at the time, there were two major rabbinical schools that uh, kind of had the most attention in their society. There was Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, who oversaw these two schools where they would train men in becoming rabbis. Now, these two men, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, each had a particular way of interpreting the scriptures. Rabbi Shammai was known as being more restrictive in his interpretation of Scripture, or more conservative. Rabbi Hillel was more permissive, or more loose in his interpretation of Scripture. So you could probably say one was more conservative, the other was more liberal, however you want to define it. But this was the reality, that these two would argue back and forth, and others that followed one rabbi or the other would argue back and forth concerning this Deuteronomy passage. And the debate stemmed on two words. The debate was all about two words. If you go back to Deuteronomy, the text says this, If then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. Some indecency was the two words in which this battle raged. Literally, in the Hebrew, some indecency means nakedness of a thing. That's what the text means. 
So they're debating, what does it really mean? What does this text mean when there's some indecency in the woman? All right? So Shammai, Shammai stressed the word indecency or the word nakedness. So as he's interpreting the scripture, what he would often tell people and what he would communicate in society is that divorce can only happen if there's an affair or if there is the ultimate indecency of sexual immorality. Okay? That was Rabbi Shammai's take on what this passage was saying. He focused on indecency or nakedness. Rabbi Hillel, the more liberal, would describe it this way. He would focus on the word some, or the word thing. So his interpretation would sound like this, that if there's any indecency whatsoever in her, that gives you the ability to write her a certificate of divorce. Some of those indecencies are mentioned throughout history, such as bad housekeeping. That would be an indecency worthy of a certificate. Uh, if she was no longer seemed beautiful to him, if he found another woman more beautiful to him, maybe even if she burned the toast or made a rotten meal, however you want to define it, he's saying that all of these would qualify as some indecency found within your wife, therefore enabling a certificate of divorce. So Jesus is entering this debate that's going on as we read this text. And the question on everyone's mind as Jesus is asked this question is this. Will Jesus side with Rabbi Shammai or with Rabbi Hillel? Is he going to choose the more loose interpretation or the more conservative interpretation? Is he going to, um, which man is he going to side with? Now, this is an interesting fact. It might only be interesting to me. The rest of you can kind of just pretend that it's interesting. But to me, here's, here's an interesting fact. As far as historians can determine, every time in Scripture that Jesus is confronted with having to choose between these two rabbis or these two particular schools of thought, whenever he has to decide, do I side with Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel? Every single time, Jesus sides with Hillel. The more open, the more loose position. Except on the issue of divorce. So let's check out his answer. Jesus says this. If you look in chapter 19, we get to this section where Jesus is about to answer. He's about to make a decision to side with one gentleman or the other. And Jesus, interestingly enough, doesn't start with divorce in answering his question. He starts with marriage. Dale Bruner wrote this spectacular commentary. He made this statement. Jesus saw through their sexist stratagems of his times and returned believers from Deuteronomy's concession to Genesis' intention, namely the equal dignity and permanent union of one man and one woman in marriage. So Jesus, in answering this question, says this. You can follow with me in verses 4 through 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus begins to answer the question, and what he does is he takes everyone back, all of his listeners, back to the beauty and the ideal of marriage. He moves them back to the beginning, and he says that the ultimate ideal of marriage is that a man and a woman, a husband and wife, would become married, would become one flesh, and would do so for life. He draws everyone back to the very beginning and paints this picture of marriage that is the highest ideal. Martin Luther described a marriage this way, there is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. We talked about marriage this last week. We talked about this idea that Jesus describes in the text a one flesh concept in which a husband, an individual person, and a wife, an individual person, become one flesh. That marriage results in oneness. You could describe it this way. If the words one flesh are more than a parable, if they mean that two people are now a mysterious third, if they mean that two whole and independent individuals are now also one whole interdependent community, if they mean two people are now so interwoven with each other that to all intents and purposes they are as much a part of one another as their own organs are a part of them, then there are exciting ramifications. Another way of saying it would be this. Oneness is not the goal of marriage. It is the result of marriage. Oneness is not the goal of marriage. It is the result of marriage. See, Oneness is not something that you shoot for. It's not the desired outcome. It's not that when you get married, you go, oh, maybe someday we will be one. The reality is different. So when you become married, you're in a new reality. The two whole independent people are now one whole interdependent person. It's a funky kind of math. And Jesus says that what I've joined together, what God has joined together, man needs to stop tearing apart. And what Jesus is saying to the listeners at the time is this, your careless teaching and practice of divorce should not continue to happen. The way you're describing it, the way you're carrying on with it, is not the way it was intended. What God has joined together, man cannot, man should not, separate. That's why divorce is so difficult. That's why divorce is so complicated because you cannot divide one without making fractions. It's impossible. You cannot divide one without making fractions. Whenever a divorce happens, part of you always goes with the other person. When two have been made one, when two have joined together, as the text says, when they've been glued together and have become one, no matter how we shape it, no matter how we try to spin it, no matter how we divide it, or, or whatever we do to it, we have to acknowledge that the result is always 
brokenness, heartache, shadows, memories, leftovers. It never ends easy. It's never simple. And that's why Jesus, right from the beginning of his answer, draws everyone back to the ideal. Draws everyone back to husband and wife together for life. So, the uh, Pharisees hear this response and immediately causes them to ask a second question. And their question is, well then, why the certificate? I mean, if that's true, if the ideal is husband and wife together for life, then why the certificate? Why did that happen? They say it this way. Why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So Jesus immediately responds with an answer. And he says to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And this one statement, this one sentence, he makes three little statements. The first one is this, Because of your hardness of heart. The text literally is translated this way, harsh-heartedness. It means stubbornness or insensitivity. So Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted, not commanded, that was a twist on words that the Pharisees gave, he didn't command, he permitted a certificate of divorce. Now going back to our conversation before, the history part, A certificate of divorce was a giant step forward from the way it had been. Many people, when I talk about uh, the certificate of divorce, they kind of ask the question, well, why would you even want to give a certificate? What are the benefits of a certificate? Let me give you a couple really quick. The first one is this. It avoided, back then, multiple wives and lots of affairs. So, if you could not cast aside your wife, the options in their mind were, well, I'll just add another and another. A certificate of divorce created the option of saying, hey, well, I'm, I'm going to, for these reasons, dismiss my wife. It also cut down, or could potentially cut down, on affairs that were had while someone remained in a marriage. The second was this. It protected the wife's reputation. When she was given a certificate of divorce, that divorce she was supposed to take with her as a legal representation of her being cast aside of her being divorced. It created rights for her. It gave her the ability to enter into another relationship with someone who would know, according to the certificate, why the divorce happened, what the surrounding circumstances were for. And then last, it probably minimized the possibility of a hasty divorce. You couldn't just quickly dismiss her as you had in the past. Now you actually had to take time to work through it And in that process, perhaps, reconsider getting rid of your wife. So Jesus describes this certificate and says it's permitted, and then says, but from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus is saying this Deuteronomy provision, this Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, was not part of the ideal plan from the very beginning. What Jesus is doing, I think, is pretty interesting here. He is taking the Deuteronomy passage and he is subordinating it to the Genesis passage. So here's essentially what that means. Jesus doesn't see the scriptures as flat, meaning all truth is equal truth. He sees hierarchical understanding of scripture. He sees some scripture 
is more important or significant than other scripture. Right? He sees some as more weighty than others. And some of you are going, really? That's for another time. We won't talk about that now. Okay? But, but it's true. Jesus is saying, hey, Deuteronomy passage, it's truthful. It is there. It is right. But it comes underneath the Genesis passage, which is the ideal. He continues, what he does is continues to draw people back to the beginning. Continues to draw them back to the ideal. So then Jesus wraps up his statement. You can look here in the text by saying this. Now I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So as stated before, Jesus now puts his like definitive stamp on the very end of his answers. And he sides with Shammai. I mentioned that at the beginning. It's the only time that he sided, as far as historians know, with Shammai. Jesus takes Rabbi Shammai's side in his dispute with Hillel. Namely, for both Jesus and Shammai, the only exception to marriage's indissolubility and the only ground for divorce is something indecent, not something inconvenient or unpleasant. And according to Matthew's Jesus, like Shammai, this indecency is porneia. Porneia being the word that's defined as every kind of illegitimate sexual intercourse. I love that this is on Clipboard Sunday. So, the word really is the, the catch-all, okay? It's the catch-all of sexual words that describe many types of indecency related to sexuality, okay? That's the word he's using here. And he describes it as saying there is an exception to this certificate of divorce, to this divorce thing, and, and the exception is porneia. Sexual immorality, sexual infidelity. In this commentary I came across, it says this, In the case of sexual infidelity, Matthew's Jesus says, The disciple does not so much divorce an unfaithful spouse as he or she recognizes a fact. The divorce has already occurred. The unchaste spouse simply does not live as a true marriage partner any longer. A divorce has already happened in reality. A legal divorce simply recognizes that reality. So Jesus is describing his answers, and he sides with Shammai. So, so far we've looked at what are the questions that Jesus was asked, and what are the answers that are found in Matthew chapter 19. And what I want to do for the rest of our time is to actually ask the question, What does this mean for our community? How do we apply this? How does Matthew 19, that was communicated a long time ago, actually find a landing spot here in Spokane, Washington, 2012, at New Community? How do we do that? And I'm going to suggest four ways in which I think this passage has to be looked at as a community. All right? First one is this. Embrace Jesus' highest ideal concerning marriage. Embrace Jesus' highest ideal concerning marriage. The ideal is this. One husband, one man, one wife, one female, right? Together as one for life. That's the ideal. 
That's the intention. The divine intention of marriage, and you hear it often in ceremonies, is this. Until death do us part. Anything short of till death do us part, any divorce is in reality something different than the ideal. I mean, you don't want to use the word, but it's probably a failure of the ideal. It was not the intention. The intention is a husband and wife being committed, loyal, honoring one another, respecting one another, having a mutual love for one another, a mutual submission to one another, treating one another with respect, dignity, and honor. Now, how do we flesh that out? I'm going to suggest we flesh it out this way. The best way to lean into this teaching is to actually do your marriage well. The best way to lean into this teaching is to do your marriage well. Another way of saying it is to divorce-proof your marriage. What I mean is dedicate time, energy, patience. Even Kevin last week talked about the idea of sacrifice. Do what is necessary to maintain the relationship. In marriage, for all of those of you that are not married, in marriage what you are doing is you're promising not just to love the person, you're actually promising to care about everything associated with the person. And you're promising that in the good things and in the bad things, in the horrible things and in the mundane things, all of it, all of the time, every day, you care about it. Now, that's why, if you keep reading this passage, Jesus' disciples say, well, why do we want to get married? I mean, like, this is pretty rough. I mean, this is a big task to actually care about that person and everything related to them all of the time. So let me suggest a few ways to do that. One is this. Go on dates with your spouse. If you are married, continue to date your spouse. Get up each day and celebrate what makes them unique. Fall in love with them again and again. I mean, go Seriously, go on dates. Find ways to enjoy one another. I think far too often we just get into routine, we get into habit. Now you've probably heard the joke before that the guy who um, is like 20 years in marriage and uh, his wife says, man, I just wish that you would tell me you loved me. Um, you don't do that very often. And he said, well, I told you the day we got married, and if it changes, I'll let you know, right? <laughs> that, that I'm committed. I'm, I'm in this thing, right? But no, that, that's not the approach. The approach has to be that I love you. I'm dedicated to you, and I want to win your affection every single day. The second thing I would say is this. Eradicate marriage killers. Eradicate marriage killers. I'm going to highlight two. The first one, I'll speak primarily to men, although it's not a men-only issue, and that is this. You need to stop looking at pornography. Okay? You need to stop. Here's the truth. If you dabble in pornography, your dabbling only increases. Okay? 
You only gain more of an appetite to look at pornography. And then what happens is not only have you begun to objectify all women, but I believe you subtly begin to objectify your wife. You begin to see her as a measuring stool t- stick to some other individual that you just eyed online or that you just saw in a magazine or that you just read about, right? We begin to compare. We begin to, to treat them with no respect and dignity. And so men, not only is it just wrong to do it, but it is dishonoring to your wives. So if you're married, whether, even if you're dating, even if you aren't even interested in anyone right now, knock it off. Don't look at pornography. Women. Again, this is not just a women-only issue. It is also men struggle with this. But there is the idea of an emotional affair. There's emotional affairs that happen quite regularly. In fact, if you were to ask several of the guys on staff, one of the counseling uh, things that comes up over and over, believe it or not, is a certain social networking site. It's Facebook. I don't know if you've heard of it before. But Facebook, over and over, you will hear come up in a conversation in which someone looked up an old boyfriend, a first love, a first kiss, someone that they had met a long time ago, and they just want to peek in on life. And they begin to see, wow, look at the way they live compared to the way we live. Look at the fun that they have compared to the fun that we have. Look at how they look still versus who I'm married to. And you begin to compare what you see online or what you imagine that world to look like and what your world presently looks like. And every time you do that, I, begin, I believe it begins to erode the very fabric of your relationship. You begin to question whether you stay in it. You begin to, to really devalue the one you're with. And so, I would say, eradicate marriage killers. Third little point in this section is this. Practice community call-outs. Don't be afraid to actually call out people on their stuff. Be in close enough communion and community with one another that you would actually do this. I mean, I have people, I said it last week, I'll say it again, that are in my life that are asking me the hard question. I have people that I think would not be afraid to walk up to me and say, hey, by the way, I noticed the way that you spoke to your wife about an hour ago, and it seemed to me to be a little bit disrespectful. That's not the way that you should treat her. That, that needs to be said, right? Those kinds of things need to be called out. So practice community call-outs. Number two, I'm going to borrow this phrase from someone. I heard it a while back. It's this. We are always for fidelity, reconciliation, and endurance. We are always for fidelity, reconciliation, and endurance. Here's what I mean. Fidelity. Be true to your spouse. Be true to your spouse. Don't cheat. Inside information. It never, ever, 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 ever goes well. Ever. There's not anyone I've ever talked to that has had this happen and it ends up positive. It always results in a tearing of the relationship at some level. It always leaves a deep soul ache. Always. 
So listen, be faithful. Be faithful to your spouse. If you're considering marriage, know that if you're entering it, that you must be faithful to your spouse. Next, reconciliation. We are always for reconciliation. If there has been infidelity or abuse, our first and foremost desire is always reconciliation. What I mean is that we want to see marriages restored. We want relational healing. We want divine intervention. That's what we pray for. That's what we hope for. Now, certainly, as we've been talking, the Bible makes the exception of sexual or pornea, sexual infidelity, immorality of some nature. And in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 7.15, Paul makes the statement that if an unbelieving husband or wife deserts you, right, and leaves you alone completely, that that could be grounds also for divorce. Those two exceptions, beyond that, understand this, that all of the teaching of Scripture doesn't say, make that the easy out. If that happens, oh, then just bail. That's not what the Scriptures say. Over and over, it's reconciliation first. First and foremost. That's the greatest desire. I, when I'm talking with couples, I always, always say, Pray to God that He would grant you a special grace, a unique ability to actually stay in the marriage. I know, I've seen couples who have been granted this amazing ability to forgive their partner, to love, to welcome them back, to embrace the marriage. Now, that doesn't always happen. It takes two people to reconcile any marriage. And so we know that there are times that the reality has to be faced that the marriage will not last. Okay? That happens. But you always, first and foremost, shoot for the highest ideal, and that's reconciliation. Last on this, endurance. Our greatest desire is to always see marriages go the distance. There's nothing, in my opinion, like seeing a couple that have been together for a really, really long time. And you can just see it in them. The other day I went, uh, dropped my daughter off, <clears throat> or didn't drop her off, I went with my daughter to the doctor. She had an ear infection. And um, we go in, we check her in, we go to sit down, and there's this couple who's sitting kind of like in the, in the first row or so, and uh, you can tell the husband's sick and feeling quite sick. I would guess, I'm not a great guesser of age, but they're probably in their upper 70s, at least. They look very, very old. And this lady... (laughs) This lady looks at me with a beautiful, beautiful smile. And she she says a few things to Evie, and she just gives me this look. And they're holding hands, and they're sitting there, and I'm going, man, I don't know how long they've been together, but there's just something about their essence. There's something about who they are that you go, wow, it's amazing. That's the way it's supposed to be, and I I think that's why we always shoot for endurance. Third point, because I am asked this on occasion, and I know many people ask this question, what about remarriage? Well, throughout the whole of Scripture and the New Testament, this one thing is pretty clear. 
Jesus wants to make remarriage difficult enough that what your first and foremost desire is, is to actually stay, stick, work it out, try to work through it, and be in your marriage. So he makes it difficult enough to say, go back, reconcile, figure it out. But we also know that there is that reality of divorce and that it happens. And so people ask the question, well, what about remarriage? Now, this is never an easy question to answer. And if you were to ask uh, the elders and staff, you would probably find several different uh, definitions or explanations or particular perspectives on this issue of remarriage. I'll just share with you personally, I, I kind of go back to the classical theological document that's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. I know a lot of you probably stay up at night and read this. But in chapter 24 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says this, and I'm just taking the section on remarriage. It says, Therefore, as a breach of the holy relation may occasion divorce. It's referring to marriage, then to divorce. So remarriage after a divorce granted on grounds explicitly stated in Scripture. Think of the passages we just talked about. Or implicit in the gospel of Christ, think New Testament grace, may be sanctioned in keeping with his redemptive gospel when sufficient penitence for sin and failure is evident and a firm purpose of an endeavor after Christian marriage is manifest. All that to say, if we lean into the idea of remarriage, it would have to have some of these kind of things as a backdrop. One, remarriage would always be considered on a case-by-case basis. What I mean by that is, just like premarital is always on a case-by-case basis, remarriage would also be on a case-by-case basis. You can't just make just a declarative statement that says, yes, we will do all remarriages, or no, we won't do any remarriages. There has to be a case-by-case basis. Second, uh, sufficient time has to pass between the divorce and your intended desire for remarriage. Divorce is like a death, and it has to be grieved. There has to be time to process it, work through it, the heartache, the hurt, the brokenness, the shattered, the fractions, all of that has to be worked through. And I believe there has to be a place in which the person comes to a contentment in being single again and says, okay, God, this is my new station in life, before there's this movement right back into remarriage. I think if we jump right back into marriage again, we often set ourselves up to repeat the same particular problems we had before. Also, I think there has to be a teachable spirit or a sense of repentance. A desire to say, as I enter into this new relationship again, my goal and my hope would be to be in it forever, and I need to learn along the way. I want to enter into this relationship in a different state. And then uh, last, there has to be community input. Again, we mention it over and over. If you're not in a community, a small group, or sharing life with people, accountability partners and relationships, then I don't think you're truly living the Christian life the way it is intended. You have to have people speaking into you, giving advice, giving input, walking side by side with you. And if those things are present, we certainly consider remarriage. The fourth and final point is this. Um, This is something that uh, maybe you've heard asked before or uh, I have been asked. But the question is this. If I'm divorced or remarried, where do I stand in the church? 
If I'm divorced or remarried, where do I stand in the church? Uh, there is the impression that sometimes when uh, someone is divorced, they have the feeling that they have like a mark on them. There's the sense like, uh, I, I feel like I'm an outsider. I, I feel like uh, I'm labeled, maybe. And people see me and they see me as divorced first. Before they see me as a person. Or uh, there's a feeling that um, maybe we're not on equal footing. Or oftentimes, I mean, you know how it is. You, you feel like in relationships, people choose sides, right? And so there's this, well, maybe some people within the church didn't side with me and other people did. And so it creates all of this tension. And so my answer to the question on where do you stand is this, shoulder to shoulder with all of us. That's where you stand. Shoulder to shoulder with all of us. You're not on a shelf. You haven't been put on the sidelines. The same mission and same calling that we have is the same calling that you have, right? So you stand side by side with all of us who are in need of grace and forgiveness. I mean, one of the most visible statements throughout the New Testament is that all of us, on a daily basis, stand in need of grace and forgiveness from Jesus Christ alone. And that He places everyone on equal footing. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what's interesting is this. I heard a gentleman make this statement a while back. He said this. If, if the church, or if Jesus does not condemn you, the church does not condemn you. And any church that does condemn you is not the church. Because the church is the visible representation and personality of Jesus Christ. And so if he does not condemn, the church does not condemn. If you have been hurt in the past by a church or by people who describe themselves as the church, and it's condemnation, it's guilt, it's, it's heaping stuff on you, they are not acting as the church. I would say they don't speak on behalf of the church because the church openly embraces and welcomes and loves and supports, and we stand side by side. We're going to wrap up with a song or two, and uh, here's what I want to do as we wrap up. When you think through this particular topic, I want you to do two things. One, as you listen to this first song, think about the fact that God's grace and His forgiveness is present, right? But not only that, that God describes His relationship with us, the church, as a marriage. And He is always faithful to His marriage. So first of all, think on His faithfulness. Second of all, I, I just want to challenge you, don't get caught up in the debate of the passage or the text or the Greek word or the theological implications, but actually let this talk marinate in you with the practical ways we can live it out in community, that we can actually do our marriages well, that we can actually lean into supporting one another. And so let's come at it from that perspective as we sing these last two songs. After two songs, I'll come up and just wrap up and we'll dismiss. All right? Let me pray.